If you have ever felt like you have been in need of a mindset shift, then today's episode is for you. Today, we'll be talking with Glenn S. Cohen, who is the founder of the Center for Neurological Intelligence. He is a coach, a speaker, an author, a trainer. He has written two books, both available on Amazon. The first called Neurological Intelligence Volume 1, an owner's manual for the human operating system, and Neurological Intelligence Volume 2, Strategies and Tools to Heal and Grow. Both of these works of art are also workbooks for you to go through past trauma, hidden meanings that you are assigning to certain aspects of your life. And this podcast episode will really help you see a new way of viewing your life. And one of the key tips that he talks about is not to ask yourself why, and rather to ask yourself what. If you have been feeling like you're in a rut, or if you're feeling like you need to hear from someone who understands where you are at and you are being challenged without understanding what the purpose of these challenges might be in your day-to-day life, and feeling like you need someone who can provide you a little bit of inspiration, then this is the episode that you must listen to. I am so excited to have Glenn here. He is an expert. He is absolutely intriguing to listen to. And he has gone through an entire process and journey of self-awareness and transformation that has truly helped him realize his calling, which is to serve others. And as soon as you listen to him talk, you will see why he is an expert in transforming your life through relationships with both those in your life and those with self. I am so thrilled to have him on the podcast today. So welcome, Glenn, to Kylie Says. Who's ready for season two? First of all, I mean, thank you so much for taking your time out. As I was mentioning, I was going through the book and doing some of your, the workshop within. And sometimes I feel like it's actually hard sometimes to go through some of the workshopping within the book because you want to take in all the information and learn everything that you're saying. But then when it's put back on the reader to take accountability for what's happening in their life, that becomes the hard part. But it seems like everyone that has actually read the book and done the work has come out of it better for it and your Amazon reviews speak to that. How like how does that make you feel and what do you think is the most impactful part of having workshopping within your books? Well it makes me feel amazing that the last 21 years that I've been doing this has brought me to a place that I can serve people in a much broader sense. You know, I've been working, you know, with people in my office one-on-one and I started writing the books in July of 2020. And just seeing the response and how people are actually taking the time to read the sections and then really dive into the exercises, reflect, and really take it in with ownership. No judgment. I always tell people, there's never judgment. We're all perfectly imperfect humans. We all have our unique special brand of weirdness, and it's okay. But to do that work and apply it with loving kindness towards self, knowing that you're not going to always get it right. But the more you do it, the more you'll get right. And it's just, it's just a wonderful feeling. Can you tell me about what you were like as a kid? Were you a spiritual, curious kid? Did you feel like you grew up in a loving family where you talked about feelings? Like what, what was that experience like for you? Well, beginning early on, probably around the age of eight, I experienced a lot of impactful neurological experience where I perceived being shamed. There was um, some physicality to it. Um, I was the the black sheep of the family. I was the quote unquote weird one. And actually just learning recently that there's actually a, um, a category of highly sensitive people who are intense, that they're just born that way. And it helped, really helped explain a lot of the, the fundamentals of who I am. But early on, I just was lost. And probably around the age of 11, I severed my body 
my head from my body. So I just said, I'm not going to feel this anymore. I didn't say it to myself is what I did. Mm -hmm. So I would deal and not feel because it was just too intense inside of me. And I, through my adolescence, just trying to get connection significance, doing it in ways that just brought more shame upon me. And through my early adult life, I kept repeating that pattern. And I just never felt like I fit in anywhere. It was a very um, isolated type of way of living. I always felt different. And then the final cycle began in 1998. A uh, lot, lot started happening. Um, my little brother committed suicide. I got a DUI. Um, I blew out a disc of my back and then... Next two years, I had a failed engagement. My father got pancreatic cancer. I lost everything I had and became unemployed. Second mortgage on my house. I mean, the universe put me to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom. And of course, it was all my choices. But when you look back on my life, you can see the progression of events that if we don't pick up our learnings, the universe will bring us another test. And so this was the ultimate. And I tell in the book that the defining moment came in uh, the winter of 2003. My son was um, at the house for the weekend. And I was just frozen stiff. Just drowning myself in vodka, smoking my cigarettes, just numbing however I could. And he walked out of his room and he came over to the side. I couldn't even look at him. I just stared at the fireplace and whatever was on the TV. And he goes, Daddy, let's play. I said, Seth, I can't. Please go to your room and play by yourself. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see his face just drop. And he turned around and walked away. And I couldn't feel a thing. Nothing. And that really shook me. And a few months later, I went to the Barnes and Nobles here in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, where I live. And I don't know why I went, but I see, obviously I was searching for something, but throughout this whole period of time, these few years, there was this voice inside of me that kept saying, keep going, the answers will come. This is all happening for a reason. Don't know where it came from. So I went to Barnes and Noble and I'm scanning the self-help section. And I come across Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within. Hmm, interesting title. So I bought it, took it home, and absolutely digested that entire book in the month of July. Cliff noted 336 pages into my laptop. And in that process, discovered my purpose. It just hit me like a light bulb. Because I never really made my own choices up until then. It was always guided by others. So it just came to me that my journey and my purpose was to study the best of the best, cherry pick it, and put it all into one place. And early on, probably in the first year or two, there was an image that came to mind of a quilt and had all these patches of different shapes, sizes, and colors. And so I just began my journey and over the next 20 years, studied over 800 pieces of work, any read or audiobooks, attended workshops beginning in 2015, because between 03 and 15, I was primary job was a pharmacist after I went back into pharmacy. And I was by 14, I had enough clients where I can do this full time. So I had the opportunity to attend workshops, trainings, retreats all over the country, South America, you name it. And as I was doing that, I realized that I had all this knowledge, but it's the experiential aspects of the journey that made the most impact. And that's when I really started honing in on the guided meditation work and really splitting this up between helping people like volume one explains how the system works and volume two is how to work the system. And it's mm -hmm. that experiential aspect that really provides the vehicle for us to go inside and heal the unresolved. And through so many of the experientials that I've done over the years, 
that's how I worked it. I'm so sorry that you went through some of it, but in a way, does it almost feel like you've lived nine lives with all of the different experiences that you've been through? Absolutely. And I would never trade it for another. I'm so grateful for everything that's ever happened to me because that led me to where I am today. I would never have had all that pain and suffering I went through was fuel that I've been running off for 21, almost 21 years now to do what I've done. And that's why I'm so incredibly passionate about helping people and creating the content to get out to the wider audience. Do you feel, or what is your take when people say, why is this happening to me? Instead of the mindset of what is this doing for me? Or what am I meant to learn from this? I tell my clients and I tell in the book, the worst question you can ask begins with why. Replace why with what. And there's, in volume two, I talk about the three neurological growth questions. What new meaning can I assign to my experience that serves me instead of causes me to suffer? What life learning lessons can I acquire from this experience to propel me forward? And what new mindful empowered values do I need to resource in order to become more resilient? Because everything in life that happens to us is learning experiences. We make mistakes. We're human. We're imperfect. Okay, what can you learn from it? How can you use that? So you take a step back. The idea is to take three steps forward from the one step back. Now, if you don't, you'll probably go more steps down. You know, I remember sitting in my living room back in 2000, 2001, saying the same thing. Why me? Why? What, why? Why is all this happening? That so, is such a great point. And that done. mindset shift is something you have to be vividly aware of. It doesn't come when you're necessarily in the despair. It's a practiced tool that you need to be able to identify, oh, I'm in this mindset or, oh, I'm really actually feeling this because I find that I, because of the tools that I've equipped for myself after dealing with an eating disorder and coming out on the other side of that, I'm a mom to a daughter with an autoimmune disease, a wife, a homeowner, et cetera. There are so many things that there's so much pressure now, but I have worked through all of those things to be able to identify. I'm feeling like I might be depressed. I might binge eat again. Why is this trigger happening to me. And I, again, the why, why is this happening to me? But I feel like when you're able to say why, or what is triggering this, then you have more of a capability to actually say, oh, I'm feeling overwhelmed because I'm feeling alone again. And so I'm turning to food. That's been my comfort, but without doing some of that work to get there, it's very difficult to stop some of those harmful patterns. Why do you think, or what do you hear from your clients as the hardest reason or what people are most fearful of actually feeling through some of these feelings? It depends on the context of the situation. So in the work, there are two aspects we deal with. Present day patterns that are causing people to suffer. But even more importantly is the fuel that drives the pattern, which is the unresolvedness, usually from childhood adolescence. We definitely can have in our adult lives, but we usually try to find the earliest um, beginnings of a pattern. So there are two distinct ways of working with that. People, the greatest force in human nature is to be congruent with our identity. We believe whatever we tell ourselves. And we've been telling ourselves a story about our identity for years or decades. To change that is a lot of uncertainty. And the unconscious mind doesn't like uncertainty very much. Mm -hmm. so we develop these boundaries that we live in. And it's all context related. And we tell stories and we have a certain state and we get addicted to that state, even when it doesn't serve us, but it becomes our comfort zone. 
We're familiar with it. And the fear is leaning into that uncomfortableness for a long enough period of time to become comfortable with that which was once uncomfortable. So it's really evolving the identity, letting go in the disempowerment and incorporating empowerment. And that's a scary thing for a lot of people individually and particularly inside the committed love relationship. Because when you start playing the roles there and each partner starts poking the other one's patterns, they start getting into what I call dysfunction junction and they get lost in that cycle. And then they what scare them. What are some of the acronyms that you think have been the most helpful that you've written about a number of them in your book? Some of them I've dog-eared and highlighted for myself to keep track <laughs> of, but what do you think some of those acronyms have been the most helpful for opening people's minds to being aware and then also being able to take accountability without feeling like they're becoming more victimized or they're being shamed in addressing and identifying a trait that they may have adopted without even realizing it. Well, the acronyms, I started to develop them like in the early stages of all this and it just kept growing, growing, growing. And I realized a few years ago, my clients kept coming in and go, I, can't, I keep hearing your voice in my head. So what they are, they're anchors of awareness. So if I say it enough, then it's going to pop up in their consciousness when they need it. For, for individuals, probably some of the ones are, the first one is Betty. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So think of Betty White, you know, this endearing, amazing, wonderful grandmother who absolutely loves you unconditionally. And you're, you're in Schmageggyville, as I call it, right? You're triggered. You're just being a Schmageggy. And she comes up to you and she puts her hands on your face and looks you in the eye and goes, honey, are you being enthusiastically true to you? That gets people to go inside. Am I being true to myself? And then I say, step, are you stepping into your highest self? Havor. Are you havoring yourself? Are you being honest, authentic? vulnerable, open and real with yourself. That gets people to go inside and check in. But I've got so many of them. Um, the ones that my clients laugh at probably the most is on the judgment board. There's three levels of judgments. The first one are AEOs. You remember the old ego waffle commercial? Mm -hmm. Let go of my ego. Mm -hmm. People let go of the AEOs. And to put the same jingle to it, which are agendas, expectations, and obligations, we unconsciously assign to people what they should or should not do. And we can't control anything outside the self. So, of course, people are going to break those rules, right? And then we're going to feel pain, and we're going to pass a verdict. We're going to deny, accuse, blame, assume. And then we call out our jerks and defend the story. We justify, excuse, rationalize, cajole. So when I catch myself, my clients in there, I say, excuse me, you mind if I use a little off-color humor? And they say, sure. I said, great. I said, please stop jerking yourself off. You're just justifying, excuse me, rationalizing, cajoling. And they, they crack up on that. And it's just, it, but it sticks. Yeah. And they remember that. Go. That was actually one piece for me that made me realize something about myself that I had come to realize, but I found that in friendships or with people that I deeply cared about, I would find myself being consistently let down when they didn't do something that I felt that they should do. So if you're in my orbit, I will give my all to you. Like I will love you. I will purposefully buy you gifts and do things to show you that I really care. I will make time for you. And when those things weren't reciprocated to me in the way that I would have assumed, oh, we have this type of relationship, a good friend would do this. You would show up when I'm upset. You would call me when my daughter gets diagnosed. You would do these things. And then my sister was going through something similar. And I told her, you can't expect other people to react in the way that you would react because you hold yourself to a certain standard that others may not be able to ever meet if you place that on top of them. And my sister said, that's interesting because that's something that I think you could also learn from. 
and love. <laughs> yeah, and she we still talk about it to this day because it's one of those things where we bring up all the time. Like I was hurt because I was really anticipating this person would react or do this. And then I had to tell myself again, you know, I can't, I can't control how they respond. I can only control how I react to why this is triggering me and then just show them love because we're never 100% aware of what someone else is going through or what they're capable of being able to give in any certain moment. And I think that's been very helpful with some of my friends and being mindful of where are they at and how can I show up for them? Even if I feel like I desperately need someone to show up for me, you'll never feel worse off by trying to show up for someone else. True. So when we look at AEOs, <clears throat> the agendas, expectations, obligations that act as rules, there are two forms. Green, which is empowered, red, disempowered. Mm -hmm. The red disempowered are the hooks where we place these on other people to try to control them. The green are boundaries, which you will and will not accept from others and how well you treat yourself because we train others how to treat us based off of how we treat ourselves. So the question to you is, are you giving too much at the expense of self? Because that's usually where resentment comes from. Yes. Yes. <laughs> well, there we go. <laughs> and, a sided mirror here. Yes, and totally, because I feel like my friends who feel the most depleted are the ones who are giving so much to their families and their children and their work and then feeling like they have nothing left to give to themselves. They don't even know where to begin. And I was in a similar place and have done, I started this podcast to get true with myself about, I was dealing with a lot of things that I was purposefully hiding from and drinking so that I wouldn't have to face. Blacking out was a regular occurrence because I purposefully wasn't eating because I knew that might impact my buzz. And those and then realizing hmm, that actually probably isn't a normal experience for a 30 year old to be going through every single time I drink, my goal is to black out or that's not uncommon. And then having to work through that and say, what kind of a mom do I want to be? What kind of a wife do I want to be? What kind of a daughter do I want to be? What kind of a person do I want to be? Do I want that to be my persona? No. Okay. So that actually means you have to do some hard work. Hmm, that doesn't necessarily sound pleasant. But one thing I realized we haven't talked about that I think this question kind of gets to is like when you start this, you started the Center for Neurological Intelligence. Can you tell us about what the process was like when you realized, I think I have something to offer here that's unique. This is what I'm going to call it. This is how I'm going to make this a reality. I'd love to be able to dig in more to that piece when you You've been coaching clients. You now have enough to do this full-time. What does that process look like? It was a hell of a journey. So I started out my very first client in like 2000, early part of 2004. And I would rent space for somebody for an hour or two, you know? And then in um, April of 2005, I blew out three discs in my cervical. I blew out my C4, 5, and 6 all at the same time. I, I just postulated that all this energy was blowing out of me now that I started on this journey. So I went on disability from pharmacy so for three years. So I, I started writing a book because I knew I've always wanted to share. I was just so passionate about what I was doing. So I put out my first book in 2006 when I, I thought I knew everything when I really didn't know much at all. But it was a great experience. And then I updated it in 08. And then an inner voice spoke to me and says, chill out. Keep going. I'll let you know when it's time to write again. So the first name for my company was I2E Relationship Coaching, because that's where I started out. And then I rebranded in 2015 to Glennis Cohen Coaching. And then I started doing all these workshops. And once I left pharmacy, about a year later, I did something I've never done. I took myself away. And I went to Highlands, North Carolina for 10 days. I packed up everything, my printer, all my supplies. I had printed out almost 3,000 pages that had collected in my laptop and 
organize them. So when I got there, I started collating all the stuff that I've been accumulating. Around that same time, I had a client who was a, a business client, great guy. And he goes, Glenn, you got too much stuff. You need a whiteboard. I go, what am I going to do with a whiteboard? He goes, trust me. So I bought a little handheld one. I play with it. I said, okay, it's cool. So then I bought a three foot by four foot, put it on the wall of my office and started drawing on it. I go, this is great. I love this. And then one day he shows up with two six foot by eight foot whiteboards and hung them on the wall of my office. And I was a kid in a candy store. I bought all these different colored markers and started drawing out. And I'm a very visual person. So I went through seven renditions and I came back from my set. I've done two rounds of NLP training with different masters. When I came back from my second one, about a week before I left there, an image came to my mind and I was at a restaurant and I asked the waitress to bring me some napkins and a pen. I drew it out on napkins. And when I got back home the following weekend, I went to my office, completely erased the board. And it took me seven hours to draw it out. And over the next couple of years, I kept moving and changing and moving and adding and discovering something else that fit into the puzzle until July of 2020, when I said, okay, it's done. Because I kept experimenting and playing mm -hmm. with my clients. And I tweak something and then tweak the board. I tweak my master sheet and just kept. And it came to me that that quilt that came to me in 2003, four, the whiteboard turned out to be the quilt. Oh, so wow. The whole background, the, 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 the foundation for volume, most of volume, all of volume one and half of volume two. That's amazing. I mean, congratulations also on just so much of what you've achieved and how you've clearly helped so many people. That's got to feel just so good after everything that you've gone through. I'm curious as to, of all of the different modalities that you've toyed with and learned and really dug into, which one was the most foundational for you at the early stage of your journey? The early stage, I was really focused on couples, and it was um, Harpo Hendricks, John Gottman. But then I'll never forget. I was so when I, I was doing floating pharmacy, where I would drive two hours to some small town in South Carolina, work 12 hours, drive two hours home. So when I started that in 2008, in my birthday, 2009, a commercial came on about an audio CD series. I go, wow, I'm in my car four hours a day. So I just started ordering CDs like crazy. And one day I ordered one called The Neurobiology of We by Dr. Dan Siegel. And it absolutely blew my mind. I had not studied neurobiology yet. I hadn't gotten there. Mm -hmm. I listened to, it was probably, I don't know, six, eight CDs in the whole set. I must have listened to it four or five times. It was just so impactful. That set the stage for really diving into the neurobiology of trauma, codependency, and all these other areas that I started going into. It just opened up so many doors. And then, of course, my NLP training um, was very instrumental. And I had studied uh, Richard Schwartz's work with IFS, Internal Family Systems, 2015-ish. It, I, it didn't resonate with me at the time. And then around 2018, 19, something came across my radar and I went back to it. And that was the final piece of the puzzle hmm. that went up on the board. And then so many um, guided meditation people. Um, I did a hypnotherapy certification training, which I never use that word. It's just really guided meditation. And, you know, so many teachers there that taught me so much about how to use what I have to teach people to let go of the present so you can release the past. That's mm -hmm. all. What, who would you say is your biggest mentor? In which area? 
Oh, gosh. <clears throat> well, I'm kind of interested in learning more about some of the work that you've done with guided meditation, because knowing that you're a visual person, for me, I really like visual meditations. If I'm doing it myself, or if I'm being guided through one, I love the idea of let's focus on the stream. How big is your stream? Is it big? Are there rocks in it? Is it clear? What color is it? I like those types of meditations because there's always an underlying meaning to them that I like to uncover throughout those. So maybe from a meditation standpoint, is there anyone you consider a mentor or just who you think has fantastic work that really has helped you through things or see things more clearly? I can't really pinpoint one person. There's so many people that when you think about, so I call, of course, I have an acronym, SIMI, <laughs> Strategic Intentional Meditative Experiences. Right? We're sensory data human supercomputers. From the third trimester on, we are programmed with sensory data. What we see, hear, feel, smell, taste, but mirror neurons picking up energetic vibrations. The whole idea in my realm of using guided meditation is getting people to enhance their internal sensory data. We can never change what happened to us, but we can change what happened within us. And when we use sensory data, and I call it creating a mini movie with massive amounts of sensory data. And you create a new movie in your mind intentionally, very strategic to rewire the past for how you made sense of it. And there's a multi, multi-step technique that I lead people through. So, so many different people went in and I couldn't really pick one, but the most important is when you do the guided meditation, make sure you see everything, hear it, feel it, sense it, and feel it. You know, like if I said, okay, close your eyes and I want you to imagine being on a beach in the Caribbean. And all you imagine is you sitting in a chair. There's nothing to the scene. But if you fill in everything and you see all of the blue water and the sailboats and the sky and the birds and the plants and the flowers, and you smell the salt air and you feel the sand on the bottom of your feet, you know what you're wearing. You can feel the breeze and the temperature. You can feel your body relaxing in that chair. You fill in the whole scene with all sensory data. It is a whole different ballgame. Explain for people who aren't familiar how the brain is a machine. What what what's an easy way to describe that? And I think also, what are some what is sensory data that people don't realize is actually data? Because I love the explanation of the brain as a machine, and I don't think people always view it that way because people are just so busy living their lives. Things are happening; they're not necessarily knowing why. I walked into this room and I feel really anxious, but I don't know why. Something, even just that level of awareness sometimes isn't there. So can you talk a little bit about just that process? The brain is a machine. So when we look at that, we have to break it down to four components. We have the brain, which is divided into many sections. We have the prefrontal cortex, this bulge over our forehead that we're the only species on this planet that have that. It's our executive functioning centers. It's really our consciousness. Then we have the limbic system, which stores our memories, emotions. We have a brainstem that we share with all reptiles. When we get triggered, it's fight, flight, freeze. And then we have the rest of the body. So the mind encompasses the whole body because you have neural pathways and connections throughout every organ, muscle system, throughout your entire body. We have trillions and trillions of neural connections throughout our system. What happens when people are flexible and present, non-judgmental, set and grounded one moment, and the next moment they have a shift happen and they either go to rigidity, pull away or chaos, shout out in some way. So if you go and change your perception right now, I am nothing but sensory data to you. You're seeing me, 
you're hearing me, you're feeling my passion, right? That's just sensory data. I mean, I'm in human form, but I'm just sensory data. Every moment, that's all we are. So when we do that, somehow, so we have a conscious mind and an unconscious mind. The unconscious mind is 90, 95% of everything we do. We can't take in all the sensory data that comes in, so most of it goes unconscious. So our unconscious mind is number one job is preserve the body. So basically through evolution, it really is only cares about two words. Am I safe or in danger? Real or imagined? It can't tell the difference. So when you walk into a situation that your unconscious mind processes in a nanosecond, that you have a reference in the past that somehow real or imagined that meant danger to you, it will activate your body. When you think of anxiety, it's really the first cousin of fear. If you perceive fear, you're going to feel anxious because you're, you're, you have a physiological reaction, but you're not even aware that there's a fear there yet because the physiological reaction comes before your conscious awareness. So now you can use that physiological reaction to waken up your conscious mind and get curious instead of just floating down that pathway of reactivity. And that's where change happens right there is in the moment we have shift. Can we shift back? Or do we just keep shifting all over ourselves? Mm -hmm. How important is breath to Massive. what you do? Massive. So I'll give you another acronym, the NSI nervous system index. So what that is, is a way for my clients to identify what's going on inside their inner world and to communicate it with themselves and with me when we're in session or to their partner. So it's a zero to 10 scale, 10 being the highest. So zero to three, we drift around, we get irritated, we get frustrated. That's just being human. So anything between zero to three is just being human. Between three and six, we start quaking where our unconscious mind is going, you better pay attention, something's happening inside. Now, above a six is threshold. When we cross threshold, that's when we leave our zone of tolerance. And that's when we usually go into some sort of flight, flight freeze and we become somebody else, right? Because we all have multiple personalities. It's a normal human experience. So it's so critical to be able to recognize when you cross three, and one of, in uh, volume two, I'll talk about the M&M technique, monitor, modify, reactive patterns. And there's four commands that you give yourself at the beginning of that technique. The first one is you ask yourself, how high is my NSI? And you create a Mel Mini movie with massive sensory data and you come up with an image of a cartoon character or a person from a movie and you embellish it and make it as goofy, silly, ridiculous as possible. Because when you have a shift, it's negative energy. So you want to put something humorous and light to interrupt the pattern. The second command is, I have cause for a pause. So that's a message downstairs. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's pause <laughs> a The third is breathe and release the energy. Do you ever see the movie The Green Mile? Yes, a long time ago. And you remember the main character had these magical powers. And when he would heal somebody, he would suck the toxins out of their body. And he put his head back and go, and you see particles flying out of his mouth. Fabulous metaphor. So I call it the John Coffee exercise in honor of him. So in that third step, breathe and release the energy you create a metaphorical image of the energy in your body and you do five, I call them four, six, eight intentional breaths. You breathe in four seconds, hold six, exhale eight. And on the exhale, you make an audible relief sound and see an image of the energy dispersing out of your mouth and most importantly, disappearing because that's a command downstairs. You're releasing it. And then the fourth step is shake it out. We're reptiles. We get energy stuck in the muscles. So 
your hands might want to move, your legs might want to, and you see energy flying off of you. That those four steps will get your NSI fat below a three quicker than you can do anything. And that's the name of the game. Get below a three as quickly as possible before you do something you regret. Or how, you keep putting a pattern. <clears throat> how do you explain to someone who isn't familiar about energy in general, the way that energy moves, the fact that we are all energy, that you cannot destroy energy, that you can use it for your advantage? You have great questions. Thank you. So I uh, I took the, uh, the law of thermodynamics and play with it a little bit. I have hmm. a tendency to do that. So energy can never be created nor destroyed. It can be transferred or transformed. And in step five of the reclaiming process, I call it the T and T step. We transfer and transform energy. We're 99.999% energy. That's all we are. People really, unfortunately, the school system, university system, has not taught this stuff yet. And I'm hoping one day to create some sort of a course. I'd love to get into the high schools. I doubt that ever happened. Academia today. Um, so people just have this knowledge to act on when they feel appropriate to do so. Um, God, I lost my train of thought. We're talking about the if people don't know how to use energy to their advantage. Uh, so we can transfer out excess energy from the body with the breath, shaking out and using sensory data. But there's also techniques where we can use sensory data and believe in the make-believe. Mm -hmm. And we can literally remove it and if the, the unconscious mind will actualize that which the conscious mind chooses to believe. If you choose to believe, you can release. I mean, how many beliefs did you have growing up in your early years that are no longer true? Because you chose to change your belief. And energy, if we create a belief around it, we can just release it. Now, it doesn't happen once. You have to repeat it. Mm -hmm. Everything repetition is the mother of all learning. So with repetition, I tell people when we do some of the practices, they have to repeat it three times a day for 33 days in order to build a neural network to change it. It's like a garden. Right? If I have all these weeds on the left side of the garden, and then I have on the right side of the garden, a fresh plot of topsoil, and I say, okay, your garden on the left grew because sunlight, which is your attention, and water, which is the focus and language of your attention. But if you start and you turn the sunlight and the water to this new garden, over time that will grow and the garden on the left will start to wilt and die away. It's exactly what happens with our neural pathways. The more focus and attention we give it, the stronger it becomes. When we don't, it starts to pair off and we lose that pathway. But it takes time and it takes repetition. Do you feel that parents today have a higher demand on them to help frame some of these things for their children than maybe 30 years ago when there was less conversation and wellness and meditation was less mainstream? So would you, mm. uh, yeah, I'm interested in your take. I have a belief, but I am interested in yours. So much of the material that I present in my books is really only 30, 40 years old. It's really new, right? With the advent of technology, I mean, you think about attachment theory, you know, even though John Bowlby just, you know, came up with it in the 40s, it really wasn't until the advent of so much technology that people were really able to test it. Um, even with uh, neuroplasticity, you know, it wasn't until the advent of the fMRI machine where they're able to measure the change in, in brain mass in certain areas of the brain to be able to validate that, that famous study they did with the pianos. So really so much of this is so new that people, you know, 
prior to 30, 40 years ago, they didn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's just so much more information and knowledge. You know, it's like uh, Moore's Law, which you just keep extrapolating that. And, you know, look, now we have AI. It's like, you know, you want to know anything. I know. I feel a very deep responsibility to try to better equip my children who are four and two to be able to regulate their emotions because I feel like there is so, there is such a lack of awareness for that, which is why I feel like you see so many breakdowns and so many people are turning to social media to try to find something that they feel like they're not finding within themselves or someone else must have it if I don't, or they're turning to drugs or harmful behaviors. And my daughter, who is four, she says namaste with me and puts her hands together. We do meditations together. She, when she gets really worked up, will do our deep breathing and I want her, my son's a little too young at two to really take any of that in yet, but I want her to be able to grow up understanding that she is in charge of how her body responds to certain stimuli and not the other way around. And I just, it's a little disappointing that I know going into school, they're not going to teach that. Like we don't teach about how to do your taxes. We don't teach about the neurological benefit of a kind interaction with another human being or some of those things that are so fundamentally important. As you're working with parents today who are trying to be better people for themselves and their children, are you noticing any trends that are coming up of, oh, well, my parents taught me this or my parents never talked about this? Because I've noticed some interesting trends within my friend group, like our parents never talked about our feelings. They never talked about money. They never talked about some of these things. Do you see a shift happening in the generation that are parents today versus their parents 60 years ago? A little bit, but I'm trying to affect that change in a big way. So when I have couples, if they have young children, I tell them at the beginning about coaching, my number one focus is on them learning how to teach their children. And there's a couple of aspects of that. Number one, God bless you for teaching your child how to regulate their inner world. There's nothing more important than teaching a child to self-soothe. And that really comes into play in the attachment stage of development, which is the first 18 months of life. Because that's when they come out of attachment, either with a secure or insecure attachment. And God bless their parents are imperfect. They have their own stuff, yada, yada. But if a child happens to come out with an insecure, you can work with that child to get it back to secure. And that's doing things that you're doing, teaching them how to self-soothe and self-regulate their nervous system. The next is really having the parents recognize their own unresolvedness So the number one person that's going to trigger your unresolvedness is your partner, because that's what they're supposed to do. It's the Imago attachment complex. You always pick somebody who has uniquely similar trait states and patterns of the people who neurologically wounded you to poke your patterns and piss you off. That's the primary purpose for committed love relationships. But your children will also act in such a way that choosing one, if you have multiple kids, that will have this inherent ability to trigger you. So now we perceive in the child something we're protecting inside. Mm -hmm. It makes us really uncomfortable. And if we're not mindful, we metaphorically take that dirty yuck and we toss it back at the child. And that's the beginning of family legacy where we pass down patterns through generationals. So I really make my clients aware when I hear or perceive them doing that. I say, let your child inspire you to do your work so you don't pass this down to them. And they'll tell me, well, yeah, I got it from my mom, my dad, or a combination or whatever. And let's end this now. Don't pass it to the next generation. So as a mom myself, I have a son and a daughter, as I mentioned. 
what do you think, like, uh, one of my questions I have for you is like, what mark, what legacy do you want to leave to the world? And I want to ask you that after this, but as parents, what should, like, how would you coach a parent who says, what legacy do I want to leave for my kids? Like, what's the most important thing that I could leave for them that when they remember their mom, they remember X about me, obviously good experiences, healthy boundaries, some of those things, but is there something neurologically that you think will help prime young kids the best for a positive life of strong belief in self, et cetera? Number one, of course, is self-soothing. Number two is, so I teach people about Mel. Mel is a mindful empowered leader of your inner world. It's the highest version of self that lives by the set of values. The values are the guiding principles, the compass of our life. And there's uh, many groupings of them. Teaching a child or showing up in a way to reflect to the child that you're being present, non-judgmental, set and grounded, open and flexible with love and acceptance, curious and inquisitive with empathy and compassion, to be able to instill those values with repetition over time consistently and congruently helps form the basis of their references for how they make sense of things throughout life. There's nothing more impactful to a child when you can instill those values in them unconsciously through experience. And then now my question to you is when you think about your life and what you want your mark to be when people pick up your books or see this legacy that you've left behind, what are some of the most important things that you want to be associated with your work? That everyone has a chance for choice. And you could choose the meaning you assign to whatever you experience and know that your emotions are evoked by the meaning you more or less unconsciously assign, and you have a chance to change that at any moment. And to know how your inner world works and know there are strategies, tools, and techniques to affect the changes that you desire in order for you to gain neurological freedom. And that's the ultimate. So when you gain neurological freedom, your mind is quiet, your body's relaxed, and your soul's at peace. Hmm. Most of the time. So in the 21 premises of NI, the last one is the law of Eddie 20. We're human. We're imperfect. We strive for 100. We're grateful for the 80. And we manage in between because, you know, it's going to happen. Shift happens, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the best of our ability? And we can live by these values 80% of the time. We're really doing good. So what are a few of the, sorry, didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, don't be too hard on yourself. People are so judgmental of themselves. And they, um, one of my, another one of my uh, favorite anchors of awareness is be kind with your mind. Mm -hmm. People are so not kind. I say, please, for God's sake, protect your ID. So everybody thinks ID is your identity, right? No, it's your inner dialogue. It's the most precious thing you own. And if people could get um, a voice memory like we have on our phones, and they can wire it into their brain and record everything they say to themselves and then listen back to it, they'd be astonished. So one of the, in the very first session um, with new clients, and I start going over the boards and explaining all this, I go, let me ask you a question. And I just want yes or no. I want you to answer immediately because I want your unconscious answer. If you have a six-year-old child, would you talk to your six-year-old the same way you talk to yourself? Yes or no? No. In all of my 20 years, I've never anybody say yes. I said, well, stop being a child abuser. Yeah, that was the impactful part of your book for me. You got a little one inside of you that you're abusing. And guess what happens when you abuse a child? They don't act very nice. Mm-hmm. How important do you think uh, inner child work is for adults today? People who have 
unresolvedness with the inner children. It's everything. So that is the first part, the deepest work. Like I said earlier, there's two parts of the work, the present day patterns and the fuel that drives those, mm -hmm. those unresolved little ones, whether childhood, adolescence, and also adult, but usually childhood, adolescence, that's the fuel. And until they, so in the reclaiming process, the deeper work with the, the guided meditation, the aim is to reveal them, release them of the painful emotions and disempowered beliefs that are stuck inside the system and resolve it. So only it's like a metaphorically, it's a bundle of neurons that have fractured and are stuck frozen in time. And the unconscious mind has no concept of linear time and space. So, you know, my 11-year-old has no idea on my current age. It still thinks I'm 11. It doesn't know. So when he gets triggered, when you've been triggered above a NSI 7-8, I love asking people, how old did you feel in that moment? And people mm. come back, you know, six, eight, 10, 12. They'll come back with really young numbers. I said, there you go. That's where your little one is. Now mm. we can visit that little one and we can work some steps where you go and rescue that one. Mm -hmm. One um, thing that I found about myself that the, those closest to me know is that, and I don't know if I would call it dissociation as much as I have this ability to kind of black out moments of my life that caused me severe pain. And all, even one of my girlfriends who we've been friends for 15 plus years now will sometimes say, oh, I think that was like during one of the periods where that you might've blacked it out. And she knows me well enough to know that if I say like, oh, I have no recollection of that. And she, well, that was a really hard time for you. She's like, I remember it, but I'm not surprised that you don't. Where do you think that that comes from? Protection? Absolutely. Well, so memory comes in two forms. We have implicit memory. We have explicit memory. Explicit memory is historical, factual data. You can tell, if I asked you what you did last Saturday, you would tell me the who, what, when, where, why, and how of it. Explicit memory is consciously retrieved. It's like going into a file cabinet, pulling it out and pulling it out. Implicit memory is a whole different animal. Implicit memory is unconscious memory. And it's composed of our perception, the emotions with that perception, the body sensation, the belief, and muscle memory. When we have an any, an impactful neurological experience, and if the frequency, intensity, and duration is of a significant amount, it's almost like we fracture the nervous system, as I said. And when we get, the body goes into so much stress, we release cortisol. Mm -hmm. And the cortisol blocks the integration of those two memories. So when it blocks it, that we, 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 we can be triggered by it but it comes back to us outside of awareness, but we don't have access to the historical data. That's one element. The other element is somewhat more tangential. And this is what I experienced. And I call it the uh, headless horseman syndrome or the Ichabod crane disease. Remember mm -hmm. the book, Legend of Sleepy Hollow? And there's mm -hmm. a picture of the headless horseman. He, He's dressed in all black next to a giant black horse, and he has his head in his hand. Well, some of us make an unconscious decision and say, I can't deal with this anymore. And we sever our head from our body. So now we deal and don't feel. Some people go the other way and they feel, but they can't deal. Mm -hmm. So between those two, That'll pretty much explain it. What does your inner dialogue look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Incredibly quiet. Hmm. I tell people I really don't go upstairs very often. When I'm in my office, I never, I, I never use my brain. Everything is intuitive; it just comes up. I'm just quiet. 
you know, I have my moments, of course, 80, 20, but it's really, really, really quiet down, particularly the last five to eight years as I've done more advanced work. Because mm-hmm. I'm always working on myself. I was in Sedona three times last year uh, doing work out there for myself and learning from many, many masters out there. So I'm I will have to get <clears throat> some recommendations from you because I've had this real intense pull to go and do some sort of a wellness retreat or work with some sort of a master or go to Sedona. That's that's where I've been feeling the most called to, um, to do some of this work, but I never know where to look or what will actually serve me, what's going to just be fluff that won't, I want to be challenged but in a way that will facilitate further growth instead of just going to say, let's sit in the sun and let's do these things I can do. I live in California. I can do that at any time, but I want to be like within that vortex that's going to help me expand. Yeah. um, There's pretty much, not much I haven't done. I have been to Peru into the jungle doing ayahuasca. I've done ketamine, uh, you name it. Um, I have, there's nothing I won't do, um, within reason, of course, to work on my inner world and to learn new skills and techniques to work with others, but please reach out at any time after, and I'll guide you about Sedona It's incredible. It's an amazing organization out there called Sedona Soul Adventures that has this unbelievable network of practitioners and you can design whatever you want. And I've worked with a lot of them. So I can tell you exactly the ones to go to. And it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. If you allow it, if you allow it, it's like I tell clients, you know, you're only getting to get out of this, what you allow yourself to do. You know, I I can't do anything to anybody. I have tools and techniques. I can lead you and guide you on journeys, but you can always say no. And, you know, if you don't work it, it doesn't work. If you work it, it works. What's next for you? I am republishing volume one. It's really interesting. The, the, uh, somebody um, erred and didn't send it to the Library of Congress, which gave me an opportunity to go back into it and make some changes. So the poem, I have a poem in each one of the volumes. In the poem of volume one, it was all right. It was something I came up with many, many years ago. But in between my second and third trip to Sedona, I came up with a new framework for neurological freedom. So I changed the poem to achieving neurological freedom. I also added another grouping of male values uh, between my second and third visit. So now I get to update it. And then we have to update two for a couple little things. And then volume three will come out this summer and that's gonna be for couples. I can't wait for that to come out. That's gonna be dynamic. So, one and two are really for individuals, three is for couples. So it leads everybody through the three steps. And then after that, I really would love to create workshops and webinars and really start working with people. Um, and like I said, I'd love to create a high school course. I'd like to um, create a coach training certification to certify people in this modality. And my ultimate goal is to create a foundation, buy a huge track of land and open up a retreat center where people come in for seven days and go through the whole process and just because it's the immersive experience over time that is so powerful and six seven days is the right number so i've done so many of them and to have that ability and i'll call it uh and that's why i created center for neurological intelligence a couple of years ago to be the umbrella for all of this mm-hmm. all these things i want to achieve I'm happy to be a guinea pig on any of these things that you're testing out. This sounds amazing <laughs> to me. So who, where can everyone find you? Where can they find your books? Where can they find information about you? How would they book with you? What would that process look like? Well, my website is center4ni.com, center, F-O-R-N-I. Um, the books are wherever you normally buy your books. And also I recorded all of them. They're on audiobook where I did the recording. Um, And then, you know, sign up on the website 
and you'll get the information. Actually, I just hired somebody to update my website. And so we're, we're building that team to take this to the next level. So I'm incredibly excited for how the rest of this year is going to play out. And uh, however the universe guides us, uh, hopefully it blesses us that uh, many people, it touches their lives in such a positive, empowered way to make a difference for them and their children. That would make me the happiest. I feel like we've just scratched the surface of so many different topics. So I'll have to have you back at some point in time where we can cover more. I think more about couples would be, you're clearly very passionate about that part. And I think there's a lot to uncover there for so many of us, both in, you know, with your partner, but also how you think about your partners within your life, your parents, your siblings, all of that is a partnership that you choose to nourish or not. So maybe next time we can dig in a little bit more there, but thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thank you for inviting me and for um, postponing since uh, I cracked my tooth. It was terrible. I couldn't show up with a cracked tooth. Um, but I would love to come back and talk about the couple's book. It's really amazing. Um, there's a lot of great sections in there and that should be out in eh, midsummer. Okay. So maybe June, July. Yep. Okay. Fabulous. Well, thank you again. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored. It was so much fun talking to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Kylie says, if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to like, rate, or subscribe. That would mean the world to me. This is something that I do in my spare time that is a total passion project, and I love getting your feedback and learning more about what you would like to hear about. And just seeing any reviews are so helpful to know that I'm on the right track with something that means so much to me and getting to share amazing stories from so many creators, business owners, etc., with you, the guests. So please feel free, again, like, rate, or subscribe. And you can reach me at any time at Kylie at goldenhourwithkylie.com. Don't forget to check out my website at goldenhourwithkylie.com if you're interested in coaching or human design reading. And you can find me on Instagram at Kylie Mojadidi. And if you're interested in learning more about Glenn or booking a session with him or reading one of his many books on Amazon, I have linked everything you can find about him, including social media handles in the show notes. Thanks so much. See you next week.